prison and half can Oh God! Daddy, stay on your bike! Dude, burning and you don't want to turn around anymore and you know if somebody now attacks you're going to be like blown out of the water but you just go no i just keep going just keep going tied on the inside it's this solo on the barriers oh what about that now then everybody i am tom ramsey and welcome to the edge coaching podcast this podcast will provide a clear insight into the world of athletic performance and help provide a clear, relatable understanding into subject areas revolving training, nutrition, stress, psychology, and much, much more. Without further ado, let's begin. Good morning, hello, and welcome to the Edge Coaching Podcast. This is episode number 58, and today I am set, sat with my assistant coach Cav Walker and we're going to be talking about his time in Calpe. He's just come back from a three-week stint with one of my clients Joe Schillerbeer and he's had basically a three-week block of training out there. We go into the conversation of how Calpe is such a fantastic cycling destination we talk about how to get there where is the best place to stay what are the best kind of rides and what are the considerations when you're out there this is very insightful for anyone thinking about going to calpe itself but also anyone who's thinking about a couple of weeks abroad um, and they're not sure where where to go in terms of uh, a destination to set the scene, we are actually in a very bleak East Yorkshire. We are at Cav's house in Hummonby, which is very near the East Coast. Um, and for anyone who knows it, it's fairly close to Scarborough and Filey. It, it is about 10 o'clock in the morning and we are sat here in Cav's front room, which is looking very sophisticated, I might add. Here goes. Welcome, Cav Walker. Cav, how are you? Yeah, I'm not bad, thanks. Uh, still a bit tired and recovering from all the travelling, but I'm pretty much there now. So, just come back from Calpe about... How long have you been back now? I think I've been back uh, two days. It's been a busy two days, though. Um, so, it's not just getting off a plane and coming home. I've had to pick up a new bike. Cheeky there. Snapped one when I was out there, so... Yeah, so uh, so you've just come back from Calpe, and um, how long did you how long did you have out in Calpe? Uh, we had sixteen days out there, so two and a bit weeks. And obviously, we're going to go into the ins and outs of ins and outs of what you did, um, why Calpe is such a good destination. But roughly speaking, a bit of a summary how how was your experience? How was Calpe? Um, so I was out there with uh, Joe Schillerbeer and we both uh, summarised it as it's almost like cheating. Um, the baseline stress is so low and we're both fortunate enough to be quite young athletes with not much on our shoulders. So when we're out there, we all we thought about was riding a bike or laying down and watching The Office. Um, it was a brilliant time out there. Um, yeah, like I said, almost cheating. The Office? The yeah. TV program, yeah, <laughs> American, not British. Oh right, oh, I haven't seen the American version. 
So, I mean, uh, playing as a devil advocate, I would I would say that everything you've just described is summarizes a, a training holiday or cycling holiday in general, not so much Calpe itself. So I've never been to Calpe, but equally I have been to Mallorca and I have been to Gran Canaria. And I would say that that is the environment that, that uh, a, a purpose-built cycling holiday presents itself wherever you go. Now, is there anywhere, I know you've been to other destinations as well, is there anywhere specifically what sets Calpe uh, apart from the rest, would you say? I think Calpe is different because it's all, it's almost all condensed into, not that it isn't in other places, but it's condensed and not so busy with cars. So Mallorca, if you're staying in Parma, you have to ride a reasonable distance to get to any sizable mountains. But if you're staying in uh, Port Palenza, it's a bit more touristy, a bit more busy. Um, you've got all the like, you've got all the tourist attraction around Sacaloba and things. Girona, it's all very compact and in a nice place. But again, you've got to ride a little bit to the mountains, and it's. Again, it can be quite busy. It's, like I said, a very compact area and I'm not going to lie, I don't want to walk up and down flights of stairs up and, to, up and down from my apartment mm. with very tight spaces, which mm. I found that was my experience of Girona. Mm. So um, kind of rewinding the clocks a little bit then, um, going back to its kind of fundamentals, uh, training camps or cycling holidays in general. Uh, I don't want to label these as kind of a, an elitist pro thing. Um, obviously, uh, anyone with a bike can decide to go and ride the bike abroad. Um, your your intentions with Joe over there for the 16 days that you're out there was effectively to ride as much as you possibly can, get a big block of training in and um, come back obviously a lot more tired but in the long run a lot fitter than you than you left so what would you say the main benefits are to cycling abroad in general and what is for you what was its the most purpose because you I mean obviously you've been the assistant coach I coached Joe that you went with um, and I remember Joe messaging me a few weeks beforehand. It was a very last minute decision that you're both going to go, wasn't it? Yeah. And I don't think you, if I remember rightly, you don't, you didn't book your flight, your flights until about four or five days beforehand. Um, but, um, yeah, the intention was just to get a big block of volume in. Tell me a bit about, um, kind of how you plan that into your year and the main purpose of going in the first place. Um, so biggest benefits of bring like training abroad firstly is obviously the temperature me and joe timed it pretty much perfectly by pure fluke he did so the entire time we're out there it pretty much snowed or was frozen uh, in the uk and meanwhile we were riding in shorts um and jerseys and gilets pretty much the entire time except one or two days where we got caught out in the rain or we had a cafe day where we were just pedaling like sub 100 watts just to get to the cafe and then we put a few more layers on to stay warm. But yeah, it's just the attraction of the temperature and like we all know the feeling in winter when it takes you about 30 or 40 minutes to get out the door because you're just putting about four or five layers on. Sometimes you've got two pairs of gloves on, two pairs of socks, a pair of overshoes. Like it's never a great feeling, but to stick it out and walk out into the sun, it's not only the benefit of how you feel like psychologically 
of doing that but then you're in a warmer climate and things it's a lot less stress on the body um yeah there's so many more things as well just like the psycho- psychological side of being on holiday like it's very different yeah did, am i right in saying did you just get in like a safe self-catering apartment kind of thing yeah so we stayed in an airbnb on the south side of calpe okay i mean well, yeah we'll go into a little bit more of that um a bit, bit later but um why did you initially choose Calpe? Obviously, you didn't know much about the location, much about the, the area for cycling before you went. I'm guessing you did a little bit of research beforehand. But what draw drew you to that destination this time over somewhere like Mallorca or Girona or somewhere like that? A mix of temperature and prices. Okay. So uh, Girona's uh, in Catalonia, which is north Spain. Um, and Mallorca is obviously an island and looking at the well it's a well-known fact among people that have been there previously or have spent a lot of time there that Calpe almost has its own microclimate and it's in my experience it was four or five degrees warmer than what Mallorca was and 10 to 12 degrees warmer than what Girona was right so that was the main attraction also we'd noticed it I think it was a bit cheaper Mm -hmm. flights wise so so Getting to Calpe then, um, how did you decide to get there and what was flight times like and how easy was it in terms of um, uh, transfers from airport to where you stayed and things like that? So I'll just lay it all out straight chronologically is what we did it. So me and Joe, uh, we flew from uh, Leeds Bradford to Alicante and then we got a private transfer to our apartment and then the same again on the way home so we got a private transfer from the apartment to Alicante and then obviously flew back to Leeds Bradford um, and Joe drove so the car was there Mm -hmm. um, just waiting for us so the flights the main expense was taking the bikes Mm. which is always a bit of a to be expected but I think the flights each way were only £60 return right and then I think it was £50 or £60 each way with a bike box. Mm-hmm. So that's where a big chunk of your cost comes from. A lot cheaper than hiring a bike out there, though. Definitely. To be fair, um, yeah. Well, if you're going for two weeks, it's obviously cheaper. But if you're going for a week, I think it's around the same price. Oh, is it? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So depending how long you're going, it might be worth looking at hiring a bike if you're not too fussed about setup and things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, the um, like, respectively, our biggest expense was the private transfer. Mm-hmm. So I spoke to a few of the pros out there who would normally get uh, basically a taxi service or use the bus. So apparently the bus from Alicante to Calpe is only about 10 euros, but obviously it's not direct and the travel time is significantly more. Mm. The benefits of our private transfer was it was pretty much door to door, so straight from the airport to uh, our apartment, but it was 160 euros return so 80 euros each way yeah I think from previous experience I've often done like a kind of one of the big transfer buses which are a lot a lot cheaper sometimes they come with like package holidays and whatnot but they give you an option when you when you book flights often to do these kind of um, yeah these these kind of package transfer deals which are like 30 quid all in and um being the tight Yorkshireman I am, I often do it, and then every time 
I am stood waiting for this bus for about four hours. I I regret that decision and uh, and wish I went private. So I think that's one thing. Like I think when you're going for like three weeks, time isn't quite as precious. But if you are going for like a week, you kind of want to get a little short ride in that first day, or you want to at least get set up. And if you're faffing around for four hours at the airport waiting for a bus, it's just not worth it. But um, but yeah, that's one thing. I think I think looking looking at how you did it I think doing the private transfer it's uh yeah it might be a, a, a bit of a layout but I think it's all worth it um especially when you're working waiting around on big heavy bike boxes and, and so on um so what were, what was flight time uh flight time so the way out I think it was 245 and the way back it was 225 okay um I think we we're for, very fortunate with the wind but yeah. We had a crosswind when we were leading, uh, landing at Leeds Bradford, which was uh, probably one of the worst flights I've ever been on. Actually. Oh, really? Yeah, the turbulence was pretty intense. Oh, wow. Everyone's screaming. No, it's definitely not that bad. But uh, yeah, we had, well, me and Joe both had all of the chairs in front of us. It was pretty really? aggressive. Yeah. Wow. I've been in uh, I've been in turbulence before where um, like one of the women on, on the plane at the time everyone was screaming and one of the women on the plane at the time literally shouted at the top of her voice we're all gonna die <laughs> and it's kind of one of those things uh yeah you keep to yourself even if you think like that way but um but yeah um no that's interesting the um the yeah flight time about two and a half hours transfer time from alicante to calpe well it depends if your driver sticks to the speed limit or not did he not? No. Right. Uh, I think at one point we're doing 155k an hour. Wow. Which is just shy of 100 mile an hour, obviously. <laughs> uh, when the speed limit, I think, was 100k an hour. So our, our transfer time, I think, was only like 40 minutes. And right. it was supposed to be an hour. Yeah. So. Was it a scary one? Or you... No, it wasn't too bad, to be fair. The driver was, was really smooth. Cool? He was just oh, foot to the floor. Yeah. Most of it's dual carriageway, so it's not too bad. Yeah. Um. So just uh, again taking a step back I feel like I'm rushing through this um, Calpe as opposed to other destinations um, so other popular cycle destinations at the top of my head one very obvious one would be Mallorca which I've been to um, best way I can summarise Mallorca is ultra ultra smooth fast roads um, but and, and yeah absolutely tons of cyclists and the locals, in my opinion, all all appreciate the cyclists um, as the the country's form of income, and they they pay respects to the cyclist to a certain degree. But um, from Yorker, I feel like a lot of the climbs there are, yeah, there's some longish climbs, but none of them are longer than obviously depending on how fast you go. Some of the longest climbs are like forty minutes long. Um, and um they all seem to be fairly um steady inclines as well not too many steep climbs um girona have you been to girona yes i have what's girona like uh it's a mixed bag i think most of it is generally as you describe calpe um pretty steady climbs mm-hmm. um just a bit of a comment on the calpe though i think there was one day where we did uh 6k climb at an average of 12 percent wow which was Great, uh yeah. very intense <laughs> yeah out the saddles type stuff there. yeah um any other cycling destinations you've been to i uh, know one that i've been to is gran canaria um not as much of a as a popular destination 
Um, lot less touristy in terms of cycling. Um, I've been there twice, one on my mountain bike and one on my road bike. Um, that definitely has a lot steeper climbs in it. But the best way I could uh, describe that is that you've got kind of a, a fairly small circular island where if you stick to the outside of the island, you can do a full loop in about 130 miles um, all the way around, which is pretty flat. Um, well, I say flat. You're still doing maybe two, 3,000 meters of climbing um, right around the edge of the, the island. Um, if you want the big climbs, you go to the center of the island, you just head head into the center and you've got a whole different category of different different climbs in terms of uh, length and steepness and intensity. The only thing that Grand Canary doesn't have, which which is when I didn't when I went there, is the the consistency of the road surface. Um, some are lovely and smooth, but between them are roads which I could best describe as worse than Yorkshire. Some of them, you know, huge <laughs> huge cracks in them. Um, and I remember one road actually. Um, which is uh, appropriately named on Strava the Valley of Tears because it's uh, a climb which must be about 40 minutes long at an average of something like, don't quote me on this, 8, 9, 10%. But um, the, I mean, the, the road surface is out of this world. It's kind of, you know, you wouldn't really take a car down it because it'd be too rough in a car. The, the, there's huge cracks which are about an inch gap <laughs> and uh, so much so that, you know, some of them you actually have to bunny hop while you're trying to nice. ride up. Very dystopian. Uh, yeah. Um, and then even the descent on the way down is the same cracks and rivets in the road. Um, so it certainly um, grows hairs on your chest uh, doing some of the, the roads around there. But I think that's what it lacks because it, because it isn't as popular for cycling destinations. They don't invest as much in, in like, you know, the, the road surfaces and so on. Um, but the benefit of Gran Canaria for me is that in the middle of December, January, it's still 22 degrees, you know, tops of 26. Um, and yeah, you can still get a bit proper sun on the skin and come away with a bit of a tan, which I think uh, a lot of guys like me, you know, really, um, really look forward to in the middle of a cold, bleak, damp winter. So um, any other cycling destinations specific cycling destinations you've been to Cav or that you can think of uh, so I've been to Lanzarote oh, yeah. um, I'm going there soon actually a lot of times I think I must be on six or something um, yeah. I used to go there a lot when I was growing up and very 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 few roads yeah very few but 90% of them are perfectly tarmacked mm-hmm. like barely any imperfections in the road um, absolutely lovely but not well there's I'm not even sure it's a mountain there's one hill right um, there's lots of hills I'll rephrase and there's one pretty big hill what's that one called has it got a name I think it, I want to say Mount TD but I'm not sure okay or something I thought that's Tenerife it might be Tenerife yeah that's, that's what Tenerife. I mean there's yeah. there's one in the mid north of the middle anyway mm-hmm. um, and the rest of the roads are like an average of 2 or 3% right there's not many flat roads they're yeah. all just 2 or 3% up or yeah. down and it's just so windy. Um, like you could easily be doing like forty five k an hour in one direction and less than twenty k an hour in the yeah. other direction. It's 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 a lovely place to be, but again, you're pretty much on the same roads every mm. day. Mm-hmm. And if you're there for longer than a week, you'll definitely get bored. Yeah. But 
again it's a lovely hot place because the roads are so sparse and yeah there's only kind of certain roads that you can ride to on on to get to different places i guess if you were there for two weeks you could ride almost every road in lanzarote right wow like and that would include riding the same roads a lot yeah to get to the roads that you haven't ridden yeah so i'm going on like a family holiday type thing to lanzarote in late january and I've persuaded the missus that I can hire a bike over there for five days. So I'll probably get like four and a half days riding, which like for where I'm going to be is, is ideal really. Um, but yeah, I mean, I'm, that's what I've heard as well. Like you, you wouldn't want to do it as a, as a longer term because you'd get pretty bored. And I think the with the wind would get very tedious after a while as well. Yeah. Um, but, um, but yeah, anywhere else that you've been? Um, not for cycling purposes, I don't no. think. Um, Obviously, you mentioned uh, Tenerife is another fairly popular one. Um, I've never been there, so I can't comment on it too much. But from what I grasp from others, um, there's one very prominent, huge climb on the island. Um, and then, yeah, the, obviously there's some some of the climbs, but um, very, very sparse. And if you're wanting a, kind of a climbing destination... Um, it w- probably wouldn't be the one that you would what you would opt for unless you want to be doing tons and tons of reps of this one one long climb. Um, going back to Calpe, then what the podcast's about. Um, tell me about your experience in a bit more depth. Then, so why why do you think Calpe is, in your opinion, better or you know? as good of, if not better, than a lot of these other destinations. Give me some different kind of key pointers. Um, firstly, road surface is uh, pretty pretty good, if not perfect. Um, there is the old road, obviously. That's pretty standard across all of them. But um, for me, it's like the environment. I don't know, the cycling environment there, because it is almost the home of the professionals during the winter phase, that... There's, I don't know, there's just almost an environment. So, like, there's a very popular climb called Rats um, in Calpe. And, like, I think every single day we rode past it or rode near it, there was at least one pro team going up and down it. It's just, it It might just be, like, the sense of awe or, like, being in the same environment as the people we, like, me and Joe want to be. Mm. But I don't feel like you get that in Mallorca. Mm. Like, obviously you get it in Girona when people live there full time, but you get the odd pro here and there. Whereas me and Joe have, like, rode, like rode with groups of pros of, like, mm. 10 or 12 while we're out there. And it's just not even necessarily speaking to them, but sitting on the back of the team car and watching them do drills and things. It's a different feeling to ride, seeing a pro, one or two pros ride past in Girona. Mm. Do you... I'm trying to think about this more critically then. Do you think that is because from a cycling destination perspective, I hear a lot of good riders saying that they're going to Calpe. I don't hear it advertised as much as a popular destination from your average middle-aged cyclist who just wants to go and ride his bike in the sun yeah so a comment about that is some something me and joe actually discussed while we're out there is that if you actually want to ride different roads you need to be doing at least three hours at a decent pace Mm. so 
there's two or three ways out of Calpay if you're staying in Calpay, and obviously there's a few different roads in between them. But to get to like to get out of Calpay onto the new roads, it's at least half an hour, right? And it's half an hour uphill mm. or half an hour downhill, and obviously you have to go up and out mm. again. Um, so we noticed like if you want to take a different road anywhere, like to get to Halon, which is near Rats, like so it's sort of where where we aim to to then leave from, and you're taking a different road and not the main road. You're looking at least forty five minutes. Mm-hmm. So obviously by the time you've gone out and come back, you're on you're already on like mm-hmm. an hour and thirty, an hour and forty five just to it, get. And that's to, at your kind of pace as yeah. well. If you take a a uh, you know your average cyclist who's kind of just in it because they enjoy cycling kind of thing, then. Um, yeah, that would be an hour each way, and that might be, including a cafe stop. Then that would be their day day done, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, so what's rats like in terms of a climb? Um, I can't give you the exact numbers, but I, th- I think the KOM is for thirteen minutes or fourteen minutes. Right. I think that's uh, held by Picatcher. Um, and me and Joe are sort of trundling up in twenty four, twenty five minutes when mm-hmm. we're just spinning away. Mm-hmm. But I think it's. Can't remember. I think it's not that long. It's definitely. I think it's six hundred fifty meters high, mm-hmm. but it's around. I think it's around five, four or five, six percent. Right. Um, Joe did consistent. A, yeah, pretty consistent. There is it flattens out a little bit in the middle, but it's it's really nice because it's almost like three different climbs in one. Because mm. the start is well, you could probably say this about any. I'm just not that experienced, but it starts on the tree cover. And then you're going up the side of the mountain where the trees become sparse and you get to the top where there's not many trees and mm-hmm. it feels like lots of different climbs. Mm-hmm. But Joe decided to do a 12-minute effort up there. Mm-hmm. Um, and we extrapolated that and if he maintained it, he'd have done it in 16 minutes. Wow. So Joe's 16 minutes Joe's sixteen minutes full gas will get you to the top of rats. <laughs> yeah. Fair play. Um, uh, yeah, impressive, impressive effort from Joe as well. The... Um, in terms of um, location, then uh, where, like where you stayed, um, tell me a bit exactly about where you stayed, hotel like location in Calpe, and then also like if you were to do it again, would you have stayed exactly there, or would you have slightly adjusted it, or anything like that? Okay, so to start, we stayed in a Airbnb in a very. I wouldn't say locally area, but it was we lived among locals and tourists. Okay. Um. So it was just a two bed apartment. Um. So me and Joe had different bedrooms, and then a kitchen and a lounge, basically. Um. No complaints about the Airbnb whatsoever. It like it did the job. It was twenty two euros a week, not two twenty two euros a week, twenty two euros a night each. Mm-hmm. Um. No complaints, but. Uh, we were on the doorstep of like a 500 meter, 16% climb to get out. So that was fun every day. All right, when you're not necessarily warm the legs up after a big six hour day before to try and roll out up this climb, that was always quite fun. Um, but yeah, if we were to do it again, we'd a thousand percent change. Not only change where we stayed, but we'd change in a different, different area altogether. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't have stayed in Calpe, we'd have stayed in uh, like further north so we just stayed in Halon which is for anyone is spelled X-A-L-O oh right um, yeah. or like Denia or places like that so the, the issue 
our reason with Calpay is it's very, very touristy. Mm-hmm. Um, it almost, I don't know if like it feels British, if mm-hmm. that makes any sense. And that's not necessarily what we're there for. Like as much as it's nice to go to restaurants and stuff, like there wasn't, there weren't many supermarkets near us. So the, that's another reason we'd have stayed somewhere else is that we had like a twenty-minute walk to a corner supermarket, mm. and we did one big shop the entire time. And it was like 40, 40, I think it was forty more, forty-minute walk each way. Right. Wow. And obviously, when you're mid-training, <laughs> walking's the last thing you want to be doing. With two heavy bags of shopping. Uh, yeah. So. We just kept going to the corner shop, which obviously meant we spent a bit a bit more than we should have. Mm. But it, like when you get home from a ride, because obviously just through habit, we like to get out early. We mm. get out at 9am. So when you come back from a ride, you don't want to walk to the shop and mm. do whatever. So yeah, if we were staying Calpy again, I'd have stayed, I'd have looked at where the shops were and stayed close to the shops. Um, and But if I do it all again, I'd stay in a town like every every even though it's not condensed everything feels more condensed like because everything's quite central mm. everything's in one place and yeah yeah so if you'd just do it self-catering you'd have essentially just had a little bit and a bit more strict in trying to location yourself a lot closer to a shop for one um i mean in my opinion um, from my experiences of going away on a purpose-built kind of training block, I would go as far to say that um, I genuinely think it's better value for money to stay somewhere where you're in like half-board accommodation because a few different things really. One of the things like you suggested is if you get back from a horrifically long hard training ride even if you've set off at let's say half eight nine o'clock in the morning you have one stop for lunch or you know a cafe stop you're gonna still be back at like three in the afternoon something like that by the time you're kind of factoring everything oh at least at least um and there's many times when you you say you're gonna be out for five hours with two stops and whatever it might be and a bit of chatting here and there it's like five o'clock by the time you're back. Now, then to get back, energy depleted, carbohydrate depleted, knackered, dehydrated, need a shower, having to cook yourself a meal, realizing, I mean, it would be poor planning, but realizing that you have to go to the shop for that meal as well. I would say if you want to get the maximum out of yourself, it would be a lot more um, appropriate to have to for the ability to get in get a shower and walk yourself down to an all-you-can-eat buffet um and uh i mean obviously you've got to consider cost and it, it will ramp the cost up a bit but like you said when you once you've factored in these little shops here and there and all the adding adding up yeah. from that once you factor in a cyclist's hunger um calorie needs I would say that generally, obviously, they're gonna they're gonna work out their half board price based on an average person, and we a lot more than an average person. Um, it'll also mean that you can do what I do, and on the morning buffet, stick a few bananas in your pockets, a few croissants in your pockets, a few uh, figs in your pockets, or whatever it might be, so that you've um, 
got enough to see yourself all the way through to lunch and you don't have to take any kind of bars and and stuff like that with you as well um so i appreciate you have to find a good deal blah 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 but if if you're not too tight on exactly what you spend i would definitely definitely advocate going something like half board would you agree i do agree you could just do what joe did and uh get someone else to cook for you the entire holiday it was you the cook? Yeah. <laughs> Can Joe cook? Or was I, he too lazy to do I it? I mean, he said all he, he... I'll say this. He said all he, cook can, all he cooks is uh, pasta and chicken. <laughs> so I was like, oh, fine. Like, I can... I, not I can do better than that, but I can cook a, I can cook yeah. a bigger range than that. But it's laughable now, because the food we had every single pasta night was pasta and chicken. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, yeah, it's it's easy palatable food and easy to cook isn't it yeah and when you when you're not only physically but also mentally frazzled you don't want to have to think oh i'll i need to put some different spices in this meal as well and make it different flavors and so on but um but yeah i think um delegating i mean the first things first if you're going to stay self-catering it's making sure that you've got at least got what you need in to cook your evening meal before you set on the ride so you don't have to go to the shop but even better cook what you're going to have the night before so you've got um so let's say it's tuesday you've just had your tuesday evening meal after you've had your evening meal you'll also cook your meal while all the pots and pans are out for the next day um because let's face it once you've had your evening meal all you're going to do is sat with your, with your feet up watching Office all night. Um, <laughs> so instead of doing that, you might as well do a little bit of cooking for the for the next day and stick two portions of your pasta and chicken or whatever it might be in the fridge so that if you are back late the next day, you don't have to then worry about, about getting your food in. Because that's, you know, I was looking through your, the block that you did. You know, when, you, when you're linking up four, five, six, seven hour days back to back, um, obviously your your calorie intake and carbohydrate intake over that period of time is very critical. Um, let's go, but like, so I'm looking at your block now that you did with with Joe, um, and this was a block that that you so going off the subject of Calpe and just back into the subject of kind of your your actual purpose of that and and how the block looked. Um, I kind of left it to you to design the block for Joe um, and on and for yourself, obviously. What was your general purpose, rationale, and and what were you generally trying to achieve while you're over there? Was there any specific kind of targets while you're out there? So just generally is was volume, which to many people may uh, not be shocked, and some of you may question it. But so the entire basis of it is just. Uh, trying to get a response from metabolic health and raising lactate one um main like mainly slash arguably the only way to raise lactate one is by um doing doing exercise under lactate one so just spinning the pedals out on things um we tried to throw in a bit of tempo and some sprints together in that um just to keep it a bit more spiced up and a bit more varied still keep the rest of the engines firing. Um, I may say Joe did a lot more structure than I did personally, um, but that's just without saying it. Well, Joe's a better rider than I am, 
Um, Joe was a lot less cracked than me, so he had that ability to do a bit more. But yeah, just the general gist of it behind it was getting a big volume block in. Mm. Um, the idea was to try do a two-day block and then maintain four-day blocks. Um, so two days on, with a then followed by a recovery day, then four days, recovery day, four days, recovery day. Mm-hmm. But we very quickly noticed on the fourth day that both of our morale was dipping. Mm. So we, we quickly switched that up into three-day blocks. And then from there, it sort of went out of the window because of the weather. So then it was just, how can we keep the volume up whilst avoiding the rain? Mm. So I'm just looking at the first full week that you did. You did six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen. It should be thirty. Thirty-hour week on the first full week that you did. Yeah. And was that the same for the second I week? I think as it was well? thirty and a half the wow. second week. Big, big, big volume. Um, yeah, and in, and so yeah, just to to support that, a, a lot of a lot of my clients who go away at this time of year, they can obviously let me know as far in advance as possible, and they always kind of ask me to structure their block and or or ask what they want me to do, and they give me all these different examples of the kind of climbs that they've got access to and the kind of efforts that they might want to do, blah blah blah. And to be quite honest, a, a lot of my response at this time of year, especially, is that you know you've got one priority over there, and that is to essentially ride as much as you possibly can um, for for that for the time you're out there, and and getting as as much easy 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 riding in in L one L two that you, um, zone one zone two as you as you can um, and. Um, and the reason behind that is is self-explanatory and it's exactly what you said. But also, I think a lot of the time when you're out there, it's all good and well designing a perfect block, but you are still subject to weather as well. And you are subject to um, what else is going on. A lot of my clients go away with their family and they've got days where they can do three, four hours, but they've also got days where the family want to go to the water park and whatever it might be. And you've got to factor that in. So I basically, a lot of the time I say to my clients, look, you've got seven days. I expect you to be doing roughly this amount of volume, but you can micromanage that around, around your plans and around the weather. Um, if it's a glorious day and you've got time for it and you feel good, then yeah, make on and, and get four or five hours in. But on the days when it's pissing down with rain, if you've got on your plan five hours to do, it's obviously going to be a lot harder five hours. It's going to compromise your immune system a lot more than it would if you if it was a, a, a nicer day. Um, but yeah, you got in a big block. How do you feel following your block then now? You, you were saying before the podcast that you're still hold, holding a lot of fatigue. Yeah, so I haven't I haven't really sat down. Like I said, um, I snapped my bike when I was abroad, um, snapped it at the dropout. So I've pretty much been in a rush to organise a new bike. For those of you that remember, I I crashed and broke my collarbone and wrote off my race bike. Mm. So I was le- I've been left without a road bike. So I was on panic missions, uh, panic stations on a mission to find myself a new road bike. So I've. When we flied home, went back to Joe's to pick up my car. From Joe's, drove down to Birmingham to pick up uh, an old specialised LA. Then to Loughborough to pick up a couple of things that I forgot. And then back to Scarborough 
over the last two days so I've not really had a chance to settle down but yeah like I went out on my mountain bike yesterday for 90 minutes and I could still feel it in my body mm. like I was just out there spinning the pedals um, ran max pressures in the tyres just to have a bit of fun on the mud mm. and yeah even as like as soon as I had to get out of the saddle I was just I could feel it in my entire mm. body it, the fatigue often like delays it's it's kind of how it how it presents itself as well doesn't it like Obviously, the, the the day that you get back, if you were to ride, literally the day that you get back, you'll feel no different. You'll feel absolutely fine, I'm sure. Um, and it's amazing how the body can cope with these huge three-week blocks when you are riding day in, day out. And as soon as you take your foot off the gas, two or three days later, and it sometimes hits you like a bus. And, and the problem a lot of people have when they do these big blocks is they they use that block and they, they, they kind of... Um, they develop so much motivation from this block. Like they're out there, they've got this huge block in, they're thinking, oh, I'm so fit, I'm going to smash it. They get back, they continue training hard after these big blocks, and then suddenly they're on the bony ass um, after a couple of days and they get ill, obviously as well. On the on the flight, um, there's a lot of uh, bugs on planes and a lot of different um, places to, to catch illnesses from um, with with mixing of, of, of people. So, um, yeah, two or three days later, a lot of people end up getting ill. So it's very important, as a little side note, to take big precautions on, on public airlines. Yeah, so. just to touch on that uh, quickly, that um, I know some people might be squeezed for time with seven days, but try and give yourself 24 hours from the last bout of exercise to being in the concentrated public area, such as a plane or something, you need to give your body as much time as possible to recover and redevelop, well, redevelop and replace some of your damaged or missing immune system from the training. So me and Joe, we gave ourselves, I think it worked out to be 40 hours-ish between mm. our last big bout of exercise and getting on the plane like we didn't want to ruin the benefits we've just got so we're like we both masked both hand sanitized like avoided that last big day of being like oh yeah we'll go out and do seven hours because it's the last day we just went to the calf had a had a meal ended up only doing i think 90 minutes was yeah, it yeah yeah um and just chilled out on the last day um even just stress adds to the breakdown of your immune system so just making sure we're packed early, making sure the, the apartment was cleaned early, everything was planned, everything was laid out. So mm. trying to keep it stress-free and, uh, yeah. Uh, what's a big uh, mistake a lot of people make is, obviously, I mean, it's, it's all well and easy to say when you've been out there for three weeks, but when people are out there for seven days and they've maybe only got six days riding, they think, oh, my flight's at three o'clock on in the afternoon on Sunday, so I have to leave at midday. So I'm definitely going to be on managed to get two hours in in the morning. No problems. Yeah. And that's a big mistake people make is they, they do that. You know, for example, if you get a puncture, you're back later than you think. Then you're stressing trying to get your bike in a bike box. Then you don't eat post-ride. And then you've not showered. And then you're straight onto the public bus. And then you're straight onto the plane and so on. Uh, that's if you make it. And it's literally not worth it to try and get in a couple of extra hours. 
you might as well just have an hour sat by the pool, chilling out, recovering, getting a bit of sun, having a little swim, whatever it might be. And then, and then, yeah, getting on, getting sorted early. Um, would you change anything other than location of where you stayed about your time in Calpe? And if you were to give your future self any advice, if you were to go again, what would it be? Um, take a bike I can trust. <laughs> yeah. Which is, a yeah. More seriously though. Um, so for those who don't know, Cav did crack his frame while I was out there. He didn't do it in a crash. Um, you were doing a sprint, did you say? Yeah, I was doing a sprint and the dropout just popped. Wow. So. Too many watts. Well. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so I think, well, I was really fortunate to go out there with Joe. Obviously, if you're spending 16 days, well, 24 hours a day, 16 days with someone, it can be pretty intense. And are we going to get all emotional now? <laughs> <laughs> Not quite, but yeah, like it's, it's it's pretty intense. And obviously, if you don't get if you're training pretty hard and you don't get a good night's sleep, mm. like things can fray. And there's there's not mu- there's not much else to be going on there other than what's on TV, how's the riding going, yeah. how are you sleeping, the person you're with. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and me and Joe are fortunate to get on quite well and he's going to, well, I'm sure over the next uh, few months he's going to be cracking a few jokes to you about how he stopped me quitting. <laughs> yeah. Um, I had a few rough days where, so the day after I uh, snapped my frame, um, I went to get a rental bike and I was busy setting that up and Joe was like, look, come on, just do it now. Like, you don't want to be doing this in the morning. So I did it anyway and we did a kit wash and I woke up the next day and for some reason, I don't know why, I just assumed Joe hung my washing and I woke up and there was wet kit and I didn't have any other kit and it was genuinely like swimming trunks wet. Yeah. And I just sat on the sofa and I was like, Joe, like we had, we had, I think we had six hours on the cards (laughs) with, with one of the FDJ boys. Yeah. And I, I was like... Joe, I can't like I can't do this, mate. I just I'm just gonna sit on the sofa and enjoy mm. like enjoy the last of the sun. He's like, nah, just put the kit on. Mm. Like it's no different than riding in the right yeah. riding in the rain or whatever. It's like just put the kit on. Anyway, it was a brilliant day out. Good. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, like I was really fortunate to have a person like Joe, but that's something for other people to consider. It's not something I'd change, but if there's a small group of you you're with each other the entire time like you need to either maybe put your ego aside or find people that you get on well with because you don't you don't want to be at each other's throats when you're pre-cracked if you've got got any concerns that you might not get along with that person before you go definitely you're not going to get along with that person because like I've been like really close friends with people and then lived with them for a year and then realized that I absolutely hate the guts. <laughs> and, uh, but, um, and, and little things can really grate on you, especially when you are unbelievably fatigued. Um, any little, small little nuances can really grate on you. So, um, so yeah, get along with the person that you're going for. Both have the same intentions while you're over there. Like you mentioned a few little things, but 
obviously I know Joe very well as well. I coach him and, and I know the kind of guy he is. Um, but you mentioned even daft little things like you both hand sanitized on the way back. You both wore masks on the way back. You mutually know that how important it is that you don't get ill, you don't get sick on the way back and how that could compromise your next block of training and and uh, and and compromise everything that you've just done. So if you're going with a guy and you say, oh, I'm going to hand sanitize, I'm going to put a mask on and he's taking the piss out of you and then and then touching things and touching your face and ripping, the, you know, you know, there's people like that out there um, who have that kind of mentality. Uh, you don't want to be associated with that type of crowd, and you know, and you want to have mutual interest. You want to have mutual um, kind of things which which matter to you. I mean, that's one small example, but I know that you're both going to that to that destination with exactly the same purpose, and you relied on each other for um, for the purpose of the holiday um, and, and what you wanted to get out of it. So um, it's a very key point that definitely doesn't want to be undermined. Um, so yeah, just to summarize then, um, to wrap up the podcast, um, for anybody listening to this podcast thinking, oh, I wanted to go away as a trip to somewhere for a cycling distant destination soon, maybe I will consider Calpe. What are um, a few key points then, taking away from what we've already said or something that we haven't already said, which you would give advice to that person Um Thing, so mainly get mainly down to location. Yeah, let's have one on location. Where would you stay? What was it called? Halon. Halon. So Halon. X-A-L-O. Or somewhere further north in Calpe, so like uh, Denia. Okay. Um, riding then. First big day. They've done a little shakeout ride on the first day that they arrived. First big day. What's... What's one of the main kind of key focus points to try and aim for on a ride where they try and do maybe four hours? You're still pretty cracked from the traveling. Something me and Joe definitely underestimated is how long that would be in our body. Um, our second day, I think we only ended up doing four and a half hours and it was the day we were both the most cracked the entire holiday. Really? was day two. Mm-hmm. Um something you might not want to hear if you were here for seven days but yeah it's the stress of everything and sitting on a plane and sitting on a taxi it's all still very much present in your body you warm into it don't you definitely um that's a very good point i think i mentioned it on the podcast that i did with sam bolan about mallorca but and, and and kind of training holidays cycling holidays in general but you do need to allow time to warm into it and time to get used to the climate time to get the stress out the travel in, in out of your body a lot of people make the make the big big um uh negative uh thought of of going into the first proper day quote-unquote proper day and thinking that they're freshest so they need to do the biggest hardest ride um and we talked about you know the amount of people in mallorca who go and smash out sacalabra hard on that first day and then they're just ruined for the rest of the day, rest of the camp. And they're always trying to recover from that first day. The reality is it takes three or four days to get used to the climate, used to you know the traveling out the legs. And I appreciate if you've only got seven days, why that would be problematic. But um, but yeah, regardless of where you are, that the middle period of your of your block should be essentially where you're getting the most riding in. But um, okay, to rephrase the question, you're four days into the block. You've had a few easy rides. You want to have the biggest day. 
where do you kind of aim for then? Rats, I'm guessing? Um, so rats is relatively close, obviously. Mm-hmm. So I think, well, Joe did most of the route planning, fortunately. All right. Um, but I think our seven hour day, we aimed for, I think it was, we aimed for five and a half to hell on. Mm-hmm. So we did a route um, out south and then up round north. Um, but we did, I think we did one rep of rats to make up time mm. because we had a an hour route home, which was along the coast road, which was really nice. Like, so we need, like, we have to do six before we leave the car, like, well, not six before we head home. Um, and we just, uh, headed south up, I can't remember the climb, but I think it was, I think it was something like 16k long, mm-hmm. uh, a decent percentage. And yeah, we just, I think you get three or four mountains in about seven, six to seven hours. Just, yeah. You need to remember like, oh, you might be like, yeah, we average like 28K an hour when we're Mm. in this country. Like, so this sort of power, you need to remember that you'll spend at least a good two or three hours, maybe four hours going straight uphill Mm. at like five, 6%. Yeah. So you're going to be parking the bus a bit in terms of average speed. Mm. I think that was the biggest thing I noticed was that we'd do a, a six hour day and we'd, we might not even break 100 miles, mm. which yeah, yeah, is yeah. very unfamiliar for me. I was going to leave a Saki comment on your Strava on the first day when you'd average like 14 and a half miles an hour, and I was going to say something like, oh, you're a bit slow, mate, or something. <laughs> um, everyone looks for the average speed, don't Oh, they? yeah, just, just before I forget as well, mm. you mentioned about climate. Um, something that actually really caught up on me out there. Um, so we were fortunate enough to bump into DSM coming down... Uh, sort of a three four percent downhill called Castells. Mm-hmm. Um obviously you can go up it as well. But uh, we bumped into DSM on the way down and they started doing race drills down this downhill. So we sat on the bumper of the car um and the driver seemed pretty chill with it so we just sat on the bumper the entire way down while I did race drills. And we're hitting like eighty K an hour down this four percent uh downhill and they they were fully gassing it anyway. We got to the bottom of the hill and I think this must have been four hours deep into a four and a half hours deep into a ride and we turned right to up rats and I got halfway up rats and a flick just switched and I just started burning up completely. I just turned to Joe, I was like, look, we need, like, I've, I've got no legs, we need to stop. Anyway, I sit, sit at the side of the mountain for like five minutes, I like completely stopped sweating, just like, just burning up completely. And I was like, I think I've got the beginning of heat stroke, Joe. Mm-hmm. And he was like, yeah, you look... Uh, pretty tired anyway I sat on the side of the mountain for 20 minutes and I was like look I've cooled down quite a bit and I had all of Joe's water um, we finished the last five minutes at the top of the mountain rode back down the mountain and to Halon and then I had two drinks in Halon and it only just started sweating yeah. when we left the cafe wow so it's like it might not feel particularly warm, but when your body's used to mm. four, four or five degrees, and then you go to eighteen degrees, sat behind a bumper of a car, fully drilling mm. it, it's it catches up on you pretty quickly. Like the temperature difference between what you're mm. used to and what you're doing out yeah. there. So just like, just because it's nice and it's twenty degrees out there, and you're like, oh yeah, I can. It's just a bit of sweat. Mm. Still be conscious of the fluids you're taking in, and yeah it's still a big temperature increase compared to what you used to. You mentioned before the podcast as well about um, the climate um, and the different temperatures that you um, encountered. Um, 
and obviously we need something we need to mention. You went in uh, early December, and um, you said there was a few days where you were wearing leg warmers. So um, in terms of kit bag things to pack, do not think that every day is going to be literally shorts and uh, jersey. So making sure you're packing, um, I would assume a minimum of leg warmers, arm warmers, and gilet kind of thing. Yeah, that was a pretty standard. Uh, dress dressing up for us um, I did take a long sleeve jersey with me as well and I took a set of bib tights um, there were how there were the week before there was some days where it was like 10 11 12 degrees and yeah I know as much as you like to have your legs out I don't want to be taking my leg warmers on mm. and off every hour yeah so just having that almost safety protection of mm. I if it is cold I've got the option to just mm. take some bib tights out mm. Mm. Um, something a lot of people will be curious about what the cafe is like over there oh if you if you're if you're a bit of a fanboy there's a bit of an etiquette to it obviously there's like there's still human beings don't go up and get in the way or whatever like if you're out on a training ride and there the team car comes past you like like there's still humans be like oh is this alright mm. don't just sit on and get involved or whatever um, especially if you're in groups of ones or twos like they're still humans. They might be doing something or whatever. Just mm. chat to them about, oh, am I okay to sit on? Um, I have had one or two... I don't know much French at all, but um, I do know a few words in French and we've passed a few French guys who had a couple of guys sat on and they were receiving abuse in French. But obviously, if you don't speak French, mm. you're not going to know what they're saying to you. Um, so just like speak to them and things and check they're okay with you sitting on or mm-hmm. speaking to them but there's two cafes we spent our entire time at one, one was called Musette which was I think an English based cafe mm-hmm. and there was one called Velasol which is Belgium um, and yeah that was our home for the every every cafe stop simply because they're both great cafes mm-hmm. and you'd always see a pro mm-hmm. like uh, I think there was one time we're at Musette and almost the entire bike exchange and the entire Barry and Merida team was there. Wow. Well, it's Barry and Victoria. Yeah. Um, the, all, pretty much the entire team's turned up. There was two or three team cars from each team. All the DSs and stuff just sat there with all the riders. and okay. Yeah. It's just, like I said, it's the environment. Mm-hmm. You don't necessarily like, not fanboying, but just been in the same environment as them. What was your go-to... Um cafe stop snack oh Joe had a go at me for being very uh, bland but it was just a ham and cheese toasty with chip, a side of chips um, you see I couldn't go I couldn't go for the chips it would sit too heavy on me um, you know you need the calories but there's something about chips on a ride I just can't do it and just sits too heavy I got, I got uh, salt cravings so I oh, just you? absolutely dosed them in salt yeah. yeah Joe was like I know you like salt but yeah, <laughs> Jesus yeah, yeah. Do they do, um, are you a coffee person? Um, I drink, I do drink a coffee, but if you ask me the difference between them, I wouldn't know. I think it's in Gran Canaria, they do something called a cafe bonbon. I don't know if they do them in there. I, I, I don't know if they do or not. They're speaking out of terms, but in Gran Canaria, they do this thing called the cafe bonbon, which is something like a shot of espresso with like double cream on top of it. Um, and then like, some sort of sweetener sugary thing in it as well yeah but it's one of those things that you go to 
if you like got half an hour left to a ride and you're absolutely hanging um some people would go for like a packet of haribo yeah but, um you'd, you'd get one of them and you got the your sugar from the sweetness stuff and then you've got like this the the caffeine from the espresso and it, and it always gets you home on a high um but no good to know that it's got some good calves um Kev, I'm mindful of time. Um, we're coming up to an hour. Yeah. Um, is there anything specific that you wanted to mention that we haven't already mentioned? Um, I don't believe so. No, uh, I think we're about done, aren't we? Yeah. Mega, well, thank you very much for ha- uh, coming on the podcast again. Um, obviously, you've been uh, coaching with The Edge for a good few months now and um, it's been some very positive feedback from all of the riders who are being coached. And we hope to grow that for you as well um, in the next few months. So thank you very much. And anyone listening to this podcast who is interested in going to Calpe, then please drop Cav a message. And I'm sure I'll give you some advice on, on where to stay and whatever you need to know. But until next time, thank you very much for listening and see you again.